You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Good morning, Real Life Pullman. I don't get to say that enough, do I? Ah, I'm glad to be here. It's good to see all y'all. We are finishing up all y'all. Man, have I been traveling back east or what? Oh, sheesh. Uh, I need to head to Missouri on Tuesday. I'm just getting ready, that's all. Missouri. Um, What are we talking about? Sermon on the Mount. We are wrapping up. We are coming down the home stretch of our Sermon on the Mount series. I got a ton of ground to cover, so can I just dive right in? I love not having to have an intro. I was told in Bible college, you have to have an intro. I was like, no, I don't. Here we go. Matthew 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, I want to spend most of my sermon in the the last part of this passage, but a few passing comments as we go through here on this section. Um, We often read this first couple verses and we automatically start thinking about eternal destinies. Like, wide is the road that leads to hell and many people are on it. But narrow is the gate that leads to heaven and only a few get there and I'm gonna be one of them. But notice that that's not what Jesus says at all in this passage. In fact, even the passage, even the language that he could use rabbinically to talk about things that would even have some of those implications, some of those, he doesn't even use here. Like he doesn't use the phrase eternal life. He uses a qualitative term to just describe life, just life. Greek is qualitative, the word is zoe, say zoe. Zoe means life, it's not a quantitative life, that's bios. Some of you may have studied biology, okay? Bios is a quantitative, scientific life. Zoe is a qualitative life in the Greek. So you'll find, you'll find life. In the Hebrew, it's even more qualitative. Jesus is saying there is something to be, fa- the narrow road is where you find the good stuff. In another gospel, he says life and life more abundantly. Like there's life. But it's easy to find destruction. Like this world is a screwed up, broken place. Jesus' kind of main point is you're not just going to like stumble into the kingdom. Like, where am I? You're going to have to resolutely set your mind to be on the narrow road to find life. So this, this reference here isn't about life after death. This is about life before death. <laughs> yeah. You should write that down. Nobody's writing that down. That's good. Okay. This is not about life after death. This is about life before death. So I'm going to use a, a metaphor that I once heard from somebody back east, but I'm going to try to change it so that makes more sense to us in the PN dubs. It's the Pacific Northwest for those of you that aren't tracking with my lingo. Um, so anybody been down to Tri-Cities? Yeah? yeah? Let's say you're headed down to Tri-Cities and you're wanting to continue south to Pendleton and Oregon. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but let's say you're wanting to go south and then like kick back over to Idaho. That's why you're going that way. And and you're wanting to come that way. You know the interchange at Tri-Cities? You like, if you've ever been down there, you like go around this one loop and then like a quarter of a mile later, it kicks you on the other loop and that loop spits you on the left-hand side of like a five-lane interstate, right? And and the exit is less than a quarter of a mile. It's like an eighth of a mile in front of you. And you got to make all those lane changes if you want to catch the one going to Pendleton, right? You, you know the one I'm talking about. So 
I remember the first time I did that, I was staring at my maps like, well, that can't be right. There's a blue line, like that's gonna be impossible. So Siri's gonna have to, oh, nope, there it goes. Right? If you are aware of that interchange and you're gonna make that, you, you have to have like blinker on, head over your shoulder, ready to make five lane changes, one straight shot over to the exit. This is what Jesus is getting at. Because if you don't have that kind of intention to hit your goal, wide is the road that leads to Portland and many people are on it. <laughs> and I hate Portland, so that joke is funny on multiple levels. All right, so that is Jesus' point. You are not going to stumble into, what has Jesus been talking about? Loving enemies? He's been talking about forgiveness? He's been talking about worry. You know, the easy stuff, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, first service laughed at that a little bit more than you guys did, but. Like, just don't worry, no big deal. Don't, uh, don't judge others. This is not easy. You don't stumble into this stuff. If you're going to live the way of the Sermon on the Mount, it is going to be a way of intention because it's not just gonna come naturally. It's going to be something you dedicate your mind and your walk to. And, and so that's Jesus' point. Are we preaching? Doing okay? All right, excellent, I'm gonna keep moving. Next verse. Watch out for false prophets. Now, I, I didn't do a very good job at this on Thursday night in Moscow, so I need to do this better so I don't screw up all the Pullman people. Moscow people are already screwed up, but you knew that. I'm from there, case in point, okay? So he does not say go looking for false prophets. Jesus does not say go find false prophets. Jesus says look out for false prophets. They come to you. This is not some old, like, go find all the false teachers and set them straight. This is not log on to Facebook and make sure you correct everyone. If, there, if I ever found a genie in a bottle, my first wish would be get rid of Facebook. My second wish would be no, double check and make sure it took. Um, anyway, in it, this is not go look for false prophets. God doesn't need any more theological, cosmological policemen. Does that make sense? He's got it. Jesus says, is, as you're going through life, this is gonna be difficult. You wanna walk on the narrow way? First of all, you better not do it on your own. Amen? You think you're gonna find this on the narrow way? It ain't gonna happen. That's why all those tables are set out out there for home groups. Like, find other people to walk the path with you. But that raises a whole nother, if, and even if you're trying to walk it alone, this is still true, you're surrounded by all of these voices, literal voices and metaphorical voices. Things that are like, trying to pull you, narratives, leaders, pastors, uh, or organizations, institutions, universities, mentors, advisors, coworkers, supervisors, employees. You're surrounded by all of these people telling you what's important, telling you how to walk, telling you which direction to go. But watch out for the voice. If this is gonna take intention, because the way is narrow, watch out for all those voices that are gonna pull you off of the narrow way. Not go find them, God's got that. He wants you to beware of the things that are gonna keep you from walking the narrow way. So watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now please read this with me. I want you to follow this because these words are important. By their evangelical orthodoxy, you will recognize them. 
As you listen to their systematic theology, it will be obvious to you that they are true teachers. Everything they teach will easily align with your moody theological handbook. You're following me, right? You gotta, oh, okay, that's not what he says, okay. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And then Jesus repeats himself, thus, by their fruit, you will know them. Now Jesus doubles down on the same idea. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This goes against, I want to teach you two terms. One that you're probably somewhat familiar with and one that maybe you're not as familiar with unless you did a bunch of undergraduate or graduate theological training or something like that. You probably haven't bumped into it as much. One word is the word orthodoxy. That's the one you probably have heard of before. Say orthodoxy. Ortho means right. Orthodoxy means right belief. Okay, orthodoxy, right belief. The other word that we don't talk about very much is the word orthopraxy. Say orthopraxy. Orthopraxy means ortho, right, praxy, practice. So you have right belief and you have right practice. Now, typically in Christian thought, where do we align false teaching in? Which category? Orthodoxy. That's like the definition of orthodoxy, making sure the teaching is correct. It's orthodoxy. Teaching is doxy. Orthodoxy. False teaching is about orthodoxy. I want you to notice that's not true for Jesus, which is important for all of us that claim to be followers of this Jesus. For Jesus, it's not about orthodoxy, it's about orthopraxy. It's about practice. What does Jesus say? By their what you will know them? Fruit. What is fruit? Fruit is praxy, it's practice. You will know false teachers, and see, this is backwards from us, because since the second century AD, Christians have been really wound up about orthodoxy. Ironically, it was about the same time we booted the Jews out and became a Gentile-only movement. Go figure. But we, we, we became totally obsessed with orthodoxy. And from that moment on, orthopraxy really doesn't matter. I mean, it does, but it's a secondary issue. It's like, make sure it's true, and then what they actually do or the fruit of that teaching or the fruit of that institution or the fruit of that group of people, well, that's secondary because of this whole grace forgiveness thing. So the only thing that matters is like the words, like to make sure you say the right thing. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't even mention the words. Jesus says, by their fruit, you will know them because you can't get good fruit from a bad tree and you can't get bad fruit from a good tree. So look at their Fruit. So I want to come up with an illustration to help teach this. So I have here a glass of water. It's wonderful. It's cool. It's refreshing. It sustains life. It's beautiful. Thad, trust me again. Second go around. Be funny if I tricked you this time. It's wonderful. Thad's tasting, yeah, good water. Got it right from that drinking fountain right in the lobby. Let's say the water symbolizes... Orthodoxy, truth. 
right? It's good, the content is good. It does the things that it needs to do. It's cool and refreshing, it's positive, it's useful, it sustains life. Tracking with me? Guess what happens when you change the, change the practice? Right? Come on, it's just truth. It's truth. It's the same thing that's in the glass that's in here. I mean, right? It's the same thing. Come on, Tom, it's truth. I mean, like at the end of the day, Terry, I don't know what you guys are proud. It's truth. It's the same content. And yet you change the vehicle, you change the practice, and all of a sudden it's highly offensive, isn't it? Thank you, yeah. I can't even write on my notes anymore, she says. Does that, does, that, does that make sense? It doesn't matter if it, at this point, when your practice is incorrect, it doesn't even matter if it's orthodox. You render the orthodoxy completely, 100% invalid with incorrect practice. Now, before we move on, we're like, whoa, 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 you're telling me orthodoxy doesn't matter. No, 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 orthodoxy matters because I have here another glass of clear liquid. Liquid, liquid. <laughs> it's not vodka, trust me. It, it, says, it says vinegar, and it smells horrible, but it looks the same. It's the same temperature as this glass. It has to be cool, and it must be refreshing, because this glass was. It looks the same. I know there are some indicators to tell me it's different, that the content is different, but it's got to be the same. So, Thad, here we go. I just need you to take a, uh, you'll see, it's just fine. Just take a nice big gulp of that. No? Okay, Terry, you're good. This will help wash down all that. No? Okay. It, you want to double down on this? No, okay. Content matters, yes? Right? It, it, it does matter. That's not, that's not, a, that's not like, a, like a new revelation. What Jesus is trying to teach us is what we don't care about is the thing we ought to care about, which is the practice. Don't, don't mistake content for not mattering, mattering. And yes, I could take this squirt gun filled with vinegar. I'm kidding, I won't. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? You can put the wrong content in the wrong practice and it could be highly destructive. I can put the wrong content in the right practice and it will be destructive. Listen to me, I can put the right content in the wrong practice and it will be destructive. No, no different than any of these other options. I have to put the right content in the right practice in order for it to be the right content. That's, that, that is kingdom, does that make sense? Okay, so now I wanna, uh, uh, what Jesus doesn't really tell us is he doesn't tell us what the fruit is. He says, you'll identify false teachers by their fruit, but he then doesn't go on to tell me like what that fruit would be. So there's another passage in our New Testament that I don't think is a leap at all interpretively to go to, go to because Paul in the letter to the Galatians talks quite a bit about fruit. Now, Paul, the one difference is Paul isn't talking about identifying false teachers as he is looking at my own life and identifying my own walk. But I think it all, it's all the same, it's the exact same line of reasoning that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount that Paul uses with the Galatians. So I think the same reasoning applies going both directions. You can wrestle with that and you don't have to agree with me. It doesn't mean that everything I say comes down from the mountain, okay? So, but Paul, I wanna read the whole passage in Galatians, okay? We're gonna start not just with the one paragraph that we always read, but a couple paragraphs earlier. Paul says this, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, 
you are not under the law. So Paul says, there are two ways to walk the path of life. And there's really only two options. You're either walking the path in harmony, in sync with what God designs for you, or you are out of sync with God's design, both for you and the world around you and what you're called to do in the world. You're either walking the path correctly, and he calls that in the spirit, or you are walking the path incorrectly. So the question is, Paul, how do I know whether or not I'm walking the path correctly or not? And I think Thad talked to you last week about gauges, like in his Jeep or in his car, you've got these gauges. Like I started in first service to try to act like I knew what a four by four was, but I, I, there's something about four wheels turning. I'll tell you what I know about gauges. When something starts blinking on my car, I freak out and I take it to the people that have the computer. That's what I know, right? There's an engine blinking at me. I feel like that's a bad sign. Fix that, please. So gauges tell, how do I know when I'm walking the path that something is off? Or, and this isn't just personal. How can I look at a teacher or an institution or a voice or a narrative and, and know whether or not they're walking the path that God would design for them? How, how about home groups? We're talking about home groups today. Got all those tables out there in the lobby. How would I know if my home group is doing the right thing. And please don't tell me that this isn't relevant in today's world. Like, I'm not gonna connect the dots and fill in the blanks for you, but there are a lot of things in this world about leadership and people that are saying one thing and doing something else and all kinds of different stuff and whatever, fill in whatever blanks you wanna. This is relevant for our world. This is not like some theological, like, well, maybe someday in home group we'll talk about it. No, this is stuff that you deal with every single day. Okay, let's, let's see. Here's what Paul says. The acts of the flesh are obvious. The acts of the flesh are obvious. They're not hard to see. They're obvious. Sexual morality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you are walking out of sync with God's design, if you are not walking in the spirit, the fruit of that walk will be obvious. Now I know we like to look at that list and we like to focus on the obvious ones. Orgies, debauchery, uh, sexual immorality, those kind of things. By the way, if your home group looks like that, please come talk to us, okay? What about, what about the less, like it's one thing to pick out the like crazy ones on, what about these ones? How about, and witchcraft, yeah, if we're doing any of that, like let me know. Um, how about the jealousy? Discord. If the fruit of your walk as an individual, as a group of people, as a teacher, as an institution, uh, whatever, if the, if the fruit of that walk is disunity, if it's division, if it's fits of rage, I'm just an angry person. No, no, no. You might be a passionate person, but fits of rage is not in line with somebody who carries a divine image. So, so that's a fruit, it's, a, it's an obvious fruit of the flesh, Paul says. Selfish ambition, envy. If this is what's being produced, something is off. 
But the fruit, let's go two slides ahead. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, or forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have been crucified with the flesh, with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Okay, Paul has the exact same line of thought and the exact same logic that Jesus does. You can tell what's going on by the fruit that's born out of it. Notice how both of them don't spend any time talking about the words that are proclaimed from the surface, the sign that's hanging around the neck, the big blinking Jesus in neon lights. Notice that just doesn't make the list. What makes the list is what is the fruit of their walk? What is the fruit of my walk? What is the fruit of our walk? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Now, I want to push this just one step further. I like to take an envelope and just push it. That's just me. That's how I like to do things, right? So I think, I find one thing interesting about the teaching of Jesus. Jesus uses the positive example when it would have been a whole lot more comfortable for us if he would have used the negative example, but he didn't use the positive example. What do, you, what do I mean? I mean this. Jesus said, you cannot get figs from thistles or grapes from thorn bushes. Why did he say that? Why not the, like, why not the other way around? Like, why not give me a good tree with bad fruit? Why does he give me good fruit with what appears to be a bad tree? Anybody ever wandered through life in your walk with Jesus and found somewhere out there, outside the bounds of what we define as normal, found something that was just brimming with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Anybody ever found that? It's just not wearing the t-shirt, but, but it sure looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck. It's just in the middle of a flock of pigeons, Right? See, Jesus says you, can't, you cannot get grapes from thorn bushes. So if you've got grapes and it looks like a thorn bush, keep digging because somewhere under the thorns is a grapevine. That's the only thing that bears grapes. It, it might look like the craziest thistle tree you've ever seen, but there's not a thistle in the world that can grow a fig. So if you have a fig, you have a fig tree somewhere. I'm not talking about eternal destinies. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm not talking about saved around. I'm not talking about any of that stuff. I'm just saying when you find love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, where does it come from? The spirit. No other, no other location it can come from. I was raised with like a Christian mentality that said, well, if it's not coming from a Jesus person, it's all fake. Nope. Not what Jesus says. If it's grapes, it's coming from a grapevine. If it's figs, it's coming from a fig tree, and this is the fruit of the Spirit, and it's the only place. Now, they might, be, they might be confused. Here's the thing. So many people reject Jesus, not because of Jesus. They reject Jesus because of what I did with Jesus. And that's something totally different. They're not really rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting the Jesus that I put out in front, which really wasn't Jesus to begin with. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of work because people are complicated. I know we like the signs. I know we like the labels. I know we like the t-shirts. Like it makes it easy for us. The problem is, is that people are far more complicated than that. Aren't you? You're a complicated human being, are you not? Like you're not just like whatever your label is. Like you're, you're, you're complex. Everybody is. And so Jesus says, look at their fruit. Look at, here's this passage. Just to make this point before we head towards the Lord's table. 
Uh, Mark 9, I love this passage. Teacher, said John, talking to Jesus, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. <laughs> good work, John. We saw somebody doing good works in your name, but he wasn't wearing the t-shirt, so we set him straight. Now, chuckle, please, and then reflect later today on how often we do this as Christians. It doesn't happen in the right space. It doesn't happen in the right way. They don't use the right words. They don't say it the right way. Sounds kind of new age. Looks a little off. Whatever we want to do with it. And, and look what Jesus says. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, looking at you, Thad, because you, belong in, because you belong to Mashiach will certainly not lose their reward. Jesus says, don't stop them. If they're not against us, they're not for it. And what does he focus on? Orthopraxy. Nobody can be doing mere, and yes, the orthodoxy matters. In my name, orthodoxy matters. But they can't be doing miracles in my name and then the next moment be against me. They're doing the kingdom thing. So get behind the kingdom thing wherever you find it. This is, I don't know why we don't get more like mileage out of, this is one of Jesus' most common teachings. He comes to a handful of times throughout the gospels. He comes back to this idea. You will know a tree by its fruit. You will know a tree by its fruit. Watch out for false teachers. You know them by their fruit. Like we could really help ourselves out if we would quit aligning with the label we want to align to and, and align with the practice that comes from Jesus. They would help us in our walks. Now, uh, we need to head to Lord's Supper. Uh, I'm a little late, but you guys are second service, so it's totally fine. Uh, if our servers want to go back and uh, get our, our elements ready, and we're going to have people passing out buckets for ties and offerings, connection cards, all that kind of stuff. After that, they're going to hand out some bread and some juice. If you're visiting with us today, we have an open table. What that means is that if you want to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, especially after everything I just preached, you're welcome to join us. Um, your family. Um, because we want to be something that brings together. That's what communion does. We know that disunity was in the, the acts of the flesh, but we know that communion would be the opposite of that. So that's why we celebrate this. Just hold on to the bread and the juice. We'll take it all together here in one moment. A few implications. First implication, you tell a tree by its fruit, not by its location, not by its appearance, and not by the sign posted next to it. You tell a tree by its fruit. Anybody ever been to the Arboretum over in Moscow? Yeah? I love the little signs they have next to all the trees. Very helpful for me. Not a tree guy. So I can just be like, oh, look, this kind of a tree. Fantastic. I can trust their signs. That works in the Arboretum. Does not work in the kingdom of God, according to Jesus. You, you don't tell a tree by the sign it's got hanging around its neck. You tell a tree by its fruit. Uh, I was in Sermon Club, and Josh Gray made this point. He said a lot of us have kids that have gotten old enough that our children have done the whole boyfriend, girlfriend, started dating thing. My kids aren't quite there. I got a little bit of time, a little bit of time before that starts, thank goodness. But uh, Josh, Josh was saying, what, what do you want? Like, think about it, all you moms and dads in the room. What do you want your child to, to do as they find, a, you know, somebody to date or whatever you want to call it, a partner or whatever it is that you want to, what do you want them to find? Somebody who says they're a Christian or somebody who looks like Jesus? 
Which one do you want them to have? Do you want them to have? Listen, I, I grew up in high school. I grew up in the church my whole life. I attended every youth group meeting. I didn't miss a Sunday school. I had all the answers. I sang all the songs. I knew how to show up for everything, play the part. I didn't party. I didn't drink. I didn't do, uh, you would not have wanted me dating your daughter. Unfortunately, I was a different person back then. You would not have wanted me dating your, I had all, listen, on the outside, I was like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I'm headed to Bible college and Jesus. The fruit of my life at that point in my development and the things that I struggled with as a 16-year-old kid, the fruit of my life was selfish ambition, sexual immorality, debauchery. Oh, did I say selfish ambition? I need to say it again. What would you want your child to date? Give me somebody who has love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Come on now, self-control, I said. Anyway, so yeah, self-control. Thank you very much, said the dad. Fruit of the spirit. That's what I would want. And yeah, yeah, I care if they call themselves a Christian. I care if they go to church. All that kind of, I, don't, I don't care nearly as much about their church attendance as the content of their character and whether or not they look and smell and act like Jesus. Does that make sense? Yeah, we know this. We usually do. I love to get to the implications and just point out that we know this. Like on a fundamental level, we already know this. We just get into theological land and we forget it. But we know this. Uh, next implication. In Jesus' instruction, orthopraxy is just as important as orthodoxy. In Jesus, and see, in our Christian conversation, orthodoxy is what matters. Orthopraxy is a second conversation. In Jesus' world, they're exactly the same. They're equal. Because this will render this one completely meaningless if it's off. So they're the same. In fact, that leads me to this implication. For Jesus, the conversation does not start with orthodoxy and then examine orthopraxy. It doesn't start with whether or not you got your belief right and then examine your practice. For Jesus, the conversation starts with the practice and then moves over to examine the belief. It goes backwards, as it often does in the Eastern world from ours. Jesus says, look at the practice before you look at the belief. Because you're just wasting your time if the practice is off. It's no longer true, and it's no longer orthodox. Last implication. None of this undoes the importance of orthodoxy, but it does challenge us to inspect the way we have weighted our perspective. None of this undoes the importance of orthodoxy, but it does challenge us to inspect the way that we have weighted our perspective. Because in the Christian world, we have put all the weight, we have put like nine-tenths of the law on orthopraxy and kind of consider this challenge for us this morning is to say, Jesus is telling me that the teaching, the voices that I follow need to be weighted against their practice, not just their belief. So we take this bread and we take this juice. And what I find so interesting is for a lot of us in the Christian world, this is a, this is a statement of orthodoxy. Like we proclaim an orthodox belief. This is an, like this is a, some, some have called it in different traditions, sacraments. This is a sacramental declaration of orthodoxy. I don't want to take away from that. I don't think that's necessarily incorrect. What I do want to point out is there's not a passage in the Bible that does that. Every reference to this in your scriptures 
is a discussion about orthopraxy. The passage we love to quote, which I always find so ironic, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it, comes out of Corinthians in the middle of a section where Paul is just letting them have it for the fact that they're not walking their faith. You're not taking care of one another. Go back and read it, 1 Corinthians 11. It's this whole passage about one of you, some of you are getting drunk and the others are going hungry. Like some of you have more than enough and some don't have anything. How dare you take this? So examine your body. And we always think he means like examine the elements. No, he doesn't. The whole conversation in Corinthians has been about what body? The body of the church. Examine your church and ask yourself if you should be taking this. Because if you are not practicing orthopraxy, your orthodoxy is rendered meaningless. How dare you take this? And that's a challenge for us today as well as we think about ourselves. So we go there to be reminded the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. And when you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus in our practice. And later in the meal, he took a cup and he gave it to his disciples. He passed it amongst them. He said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus in our practice. In a, in a moment, I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing a closing song. And we have people uh, all around the room. Uh, during, after, on your way out, we have people here that would love to pray for you. If you need anything, if you have been coming to this sermon series and, and you have met this Jesus, I mean, you've heard of Jesus before, but you've met this Jesus really for the first time. You've never really examined Jesus like you have during this series, and you need to pray with somebody about that. You need to do some, these, there are people here that could help you know what those steps look like and what to do. If, uh, if you're just struggling, if, if you sit in this message and you think to yourself, I can look at the fruit of my life and I know which list it belongs to and it needs to be the other one. Get prayer for that. Um, and then on your way out of, out of here today, get relationships, get help, get community, get people that are gonna walk the path with you because this thing is pretty difficult on our own. So join me in prayer and we'll go from there. Father God, we, um, we're thankful that you've called us to this thing, that you've called us to this mission. But we realize as we study the Sermon on the Mount week in and week out, we realize how often our mission is not your mission. We've gotten things confused. We've, we've just assumed that our mission is your mission. And uh, God, God, we pray that you would help us to re-examine that. Pray that you would help us to re-examine our own walks. Pray that we, you would help us to just look up and examine the people that we, that we follow, the institutions we cling to, the, the, the groups of people that help us figure out which way we're going to go. Would we examine whether or not it's the orthopraxy that looks like you, whether or not it's something that looks like kingdom? So God, help us, because we need it. We need lots of your help, and uh, we turn to you for that. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com. 